Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to um, sing your praise. And Lord, we are holding on to promises that you've made to us in your word. And you are the cornerstone. We want to build our lives on the love of Christ. More and more, you're convincing my heart that, that we need to just keep running back to the gospel and, and seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, even today, that you would reveal that to us in your word. And, and what a sweet thing that we get to open it up and we get to hear from you. And I'm praying that your spirit is present and that we would fall more deeply in love with you, that we would be impressed with the greatness of Christ. And, and out of that, that we would want to be like you, that you would make us more like your son. God, that's what our church needs. And I pray that you would do that. So I pray that even right now, you'd help us to submit to what it is that you want to say to us. Uh, help us to uh, be attentive uh, to your word and, and, and what you're trying to say. May we listen to you and may we walk out of here changed. It's, it's never just another Sunday. We get to, to open up God's word together as the people of God looking to you to make us more like yourself for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys can be seated. And uh, why don't you open up your Bibles and go with me to the book of Exodus. Uh, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 wants you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Yes, I know you're seeing that for the first time now, like, right? You're like catching on. I'm trying to help you out a little bit here. Uh, our ushers are coming around. If you don't have a Bible, you can just get their attention. They would love to give you one. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, uh, just would you just take that one home? And, and that's a gift uh, from us to you. We would love for you to have that. We love to study it together. Or you can follow along with us on the Bible app. Uh, you can uh, follow along in the scriptures and take notes there if you would like. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 17. We're actually finishing up chapter 17. Just so you know, next week uh, we're going to take a big long break from the book of Exodus. We're going to start looking at our mission and our six pursuits, how we're pursuing that mission. But uh, we are finishing up chapter 17. Over the last three weeks, we've been uh, struggling with our attitudes uh, maybe some of us have been struggling with our attitudes. But one of the things that we've been seeing is, as, as the children of Israel are kind of wandering through uh, the wilderness is that, 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 man, God is so patient and so gracious to them because he still provides for them even despite their grumbling and, and selfish and uh, rebellious hearts. And he's trying to, the reason, and he even told us this, what he's trying to do is he's trying to test them. Not because God wants to see them fail, uh, but because God wants to teach them in the wilderness. So come on, come on, tell me, uh, how are they doing at uh, uh, passing the, the test of trusting the Lord out here? Yeah, not so hot, not so hot. Uh, it's actually been pretty miserable and embarrassing over the last three weeks to see their attitudes in uh, despite what God is doing and all his miraculous provision. Uh, but before we start dumping on uh, the Israelites, one of the things we've been realizing is that when we open up God's word, this is like a mirror, right? Because <laughs> when we read the story of Israel, it's kind of like seeing ourselves, like our hearts uh, are, are just like theirs because uh, the greatest war, the greatest struggle that we have comes from within. But one of the things that I want to show you this morning is even though we struggle in here, um, that's not our only struggle. And the battle rages on the inside, but it also comes from the outside unsuspected. 
at times. And so uh, let's, let's start reading. We're in Exodus chapter 17. We're going to start reading in verse 8 and, and want to try to make sense of this here. Uh, starting right there in verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses lifted up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So uh, let's be honest, this kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, here, here um, there, the, it just says, Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Here are the Israelites just kind of minding their own business, grumbling and complaining, being a little Mr. Grumpy Pants about what God is doing, and then, you know, struggling with their attitude, and all of a sudden, bam, they're under attack, out of, out of nowhere. And so, immediately, uh, you're, you're seeing uh, this guy, Amalek. Uh, let, me, let me just uh, uh, clarify here, just so you know who in the world this is. Um, this is, Amalek is the grandson of Esau, like Jacob and Esau. Remember that guy? And, and Esau, so, so this is, these are the descendants of uh, Amalek and Esau, and they're this kind of nomadic tribe in uh, northern Sinai. And to be honest with you, even though this kind of like immediately comes out of nowhere, we weren't suspecting it, um, we don't really know why. We don't really know why they attacked. Apparently somebody was like, hey, do you know those Israel? You heard about those guys that like just walked through the Red Sea on dry land and took out the greatest army on earth? The guys that beat Egypt, let's go attack them. Let's go get them. I don't know who thought that was a really good idea. That was a bad call. Uh, uh, probably a weak military maneuver, although it probably did have some strategy to it because later uh, Moses actually tells us uh, when he's remembering this at the end of chapter uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, he, he tells us, you remember Amalek? You remember the guy that, that, that came after you and, and right after all that God provided for us? And he said, he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind uh, because he did not fear God. So, so, so the Amalekites are, are probably a little afraid that, that Israel's going to butt in on their territory, and so they're feeling like, you know, like I know like they had this awesome military you know, victory over Egypt, and that was kind of crazy. We've heard all about what God did for them there, but they got to be tired now, and, and, and so let's get them early while they're a little worn out and make sure they don't come into uh, our territory, but uh, they obviously don't respect the Lord. And, and here, listen, this is, this is the simple and obvious truth on display in this story. I want you to get this. The Lord is the one who gives them 
the victory. You know that? Uh, we, 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 it's kind of a weird story. You got Moses like sticking up his arms and, and, and lowering them, and like, but 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 just because you're sticking up your arms, it's not like a it's not like a magic trick. Okay, they don't teach this as a strategic maneuver at the military academy. Like this is this is how we fight our battles. That's not what's going on here. And I do realize that we're we're always trying to ask how do we? I, I want to like get something out of this. And so when we read this story, sometimes I think there might be lessons here. Maybe there's something going on maybe, that, that 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 you don't want to just go it alone and and surrounding yourselves with brothers and sisters to uh, support you and serving together and, and persistence in prayer. I think those things are fine. But I think the point and the principle for us to see here is that the Lord is the hero. He is the one who saves his people from their enemies. It's not Moses. It's not what he's doing. It's not Joshua down there fighting with the sword. It's not even Aaron and her who are supporting them. God wins the war in the wilderness. He's the one who defeats our enemies. Now, um, what are we supposed to do with that? Like, how do, we, um, how do we apply this story knowing that God's gonna defeat our enemies? Because I wanna make sure that you're not thinking um, that, that, that uh, this is intended to give you hope when you feel like you're under attack from uh, an, an annoying roommate or a stingy landlord or a frustrating coworker, or anything. Like, they're my enemy. And, and the, the point of this is not that God is going to destroy them, okay? Let, let me give you, uh, uh, th- th- this is, I think, what, what God wants us to see, how we apply this, is that just as uh, the people of Israel faced attacks from the outside, so do we. In fact, we're probably under attack right now. Let, let, let me help you. Uh, maybe, maybe this will be a better way for us to understand why this is significant, why this is kind of an urgent word for us. Um, have you ever struggled following God in obedience? You ever wrestle like you're trying and, and you're like, I'm trying to do the right thing here. And it's, it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? Do you know Why? See, I think it's important and I think it's helpful if we know why we struggle at obedience. The first reason that we struggle is because the biggest struggle is on the inside. It's because our hearts are bent towards sin. We still, even though Jesus has changed us and we are a new creation in Christ, we still have the old sinful nature, the flesh, and we wrestle with that and our hearts just kind of go that direction. Well, we've said this before that our hearts are kind of like a, a stupid shopping cart. Remember that? Like this, you've, you've experienced this where you go to the grocery store and you get a shopping cart and you don't realize until about three aisles in that you got a stupid one because you're like pushing it along and, and you're like fighting it and it just wants to go its own direction and left to itself, it's just bam, right into the shelves. And the whole time you're fighting it, that's like a picture of our hearts. Left to ourselves, we want to go the wrong way. And so that's why we really struggle, but that's not the only reason that we struggle to obey God. The other reason is that we also have an enemy who hates Jesus, and he hates us, and he wants us to veer off course and rebel against God. Satan and his kingdom are actively working against our new desires to follow Jesus and are tempting us back into sin. 
which is why Paul says that we need to put on the armor of God so that we'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, church, we've got to hear this. We are in spiritual warfare. Now, I want to appeal to some of you that the minute you hear that, you're a little skeptical, and I get it, okay? I understand, especially in our, uh, our climate and our culture, uh, and especially here in the West, um, the, the idea of, like, angels and, and demons, uh, that might not sound reasonable to you. That might sound kind of uh, uh, fanciful or, or uh, uh, you know, hokey or kind of cheesy, uh, maybe something that you would see on TV, But the Bible says that this is our reality. And the fact that we don't always realize it makes it all the more dangerous. There are spiritual forces that try to attack us. And I think in some ways they kind of acclimate to the culture, which is why for us, I know a lot of times when you think spiritual warfare, you might be thinking like uh, demon possession and that kind of thing. Honestly, I think most of the time their attacks are so subtle that we don't even notice it and we forget all about it, which they for sure probably use to their advantage to keep us unaware and unsuspecting and vulnerable. They usually get us with little temptations, like, like the, they, they attack us with those little temptations to maybe even right now to kind of distract us from hearing God's word and, and start thinking about lunch. And I've got some reward points at Chipotle that I'm ready to use. Or, or I start thinking about my fantasy football team. Or, or when I'm praying in the morning, uh, I've got that temptation. My phone's sitting right there and I pick it up and then I'm like, find myself just endlessly scrolling and, and for 20, 30 minutes and getting lost in my to-do list for the day. Or, or when, when things are happening all around you, it's that temptation we've been talking about for the last few weeks to, to grumble and to complain when my circumstances don't feel fair to me. Or, or to notice what other people have that I don't have or, or to fudge the truth and lie a little bit to, to protect myself and, and, and make myself look better and, 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 or maybe it's to take advantage of somebody else's mistake and, and, and try to put others down to advance my own career, my own popularity, make sure that people like me, that I really look good or to, or to sneak a look at something that's inappropriate or to hide my internet history on my computer or my phone or my apps or wherever it is because I don't want people to know what it is that I've been looking at. Listen, listen, they take advantage of our internal struggle against our own sinful nature. And they pounce on these opportunities to inflame our lusts and our self-centeredness and present us with temptation to gratify our own desires and make it all about us. I think, honestly, if we only knew how often we are under attack. I was thinking about you this week and, and, and realizing like you've, you've been under attack this week. And maybe you didn't even realize it. Maybe you didn't even know it was happening. And I think this might be one of the reasons that why uh, many of us find ourselves really struggling in defeat instead of living in the victory that is ours in Christ because we're succumbing to this temptation in spiritual warfare and we didn't even know it was happening. So, so, so let, me give you, let me give you the big idea that, that I think, even though uh, I, I realize that you may not see it directly there in the text, this is what God wants us to hear in this. So take, if you're taking notes, note this. We will 
come under spiritual attack. But here's the good news. The Lord defeats our enemies. Now, I know we, we, we work our way through uh, books of the Bible kind of verse by verse and just trying to see what it is. We want the message of the text. And I realize that this story is not directly about spiritual warfare, but, but I think we see God's people, uh, they're, they're under attack from this physical outside enemy and they need God to save them. And I want to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of this story because he is the one who gives us victory over our enemies. So let me give you two uh, battle strategies for spiritual warfare, all right? If you're taking notes, note this. Here's one. You need to depend on the Lord for victory. You need to depend on the Lord for victory. We're going to see that right here. Uh, Verse 9, obviously this kind of came out of nowhere, but Moses springs into action here. Verse 9, it says that he said to Joshua, choose for men, uh, choose men for us to go and go out and fight. He just got to move quickly into action. There's no time to lose. We're under attack. We got to do something about this. But notice what Moses says he's going to do. Verse 9, it says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So, so Moses picks up his staff. I'll I, I, be honest, this staff has come in pretty handy, hasn't it? I mean, in fact, uh, when, when God first called Moses to this, and when, when he was there in front of the burning bush back in chapter 4, God told him, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Don't forget the staff. You're going to need the staff, okay? And so Moses, he's not packing this away in the luggage bin overhead. He's holding on to this for dear life because this has become the symbol of God's power and God's presence with them. And so while, while Josh here in verse 11, he's down there, you know, fighting the Amalekites. And Moses, what's he doing? He's lifting up his hands and his staff. And whenever he does, they're, they're winning. And whenever he doesn't, they're losing. We kind of wonder, like, why, why, why is he lifting up the staff? And I think the answer is because he's done this before. Remember all the way back when, when, when the battle with Egypt first started, the very first of the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt back in chapter 7. I've got this one for you on the screen. Here, here's what uh, God was telling him to do when he went uh, to start the ten plagues. He said, uh, it says that Moses lifted up the staff, there it is, and he struck the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. God was just proving his power over what he had made and bringing judgment on uh, the people of Egypt. And, and then it happened again. You know, they, let, they finally let Israel go and, and, and they're wandering out into the wilderness, but Pharaoh changed his mind. You remember that? And so all of a sudden, here they were, they thought they were free, and then they turned around and they realized that, that Pharaoh and his army are barreling down on top of them, but they've got the Red Sea at their backs, and they're like, what in the world are we going to do? Well, here's what happened in chapter 14. Here's what God told him. He said to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry Ground. So what's happening whenever this has been lifted up is that God is demonstrating his power over creation and bringing judgment and bringing salvation. And so as soon as Amalek attacks, it, it doesn't tell us that, that God told Moses to do this, but as soon as he knew they were in trouble, I think Moses is like, guys, I know just what to do. And he goes and he lifts 
up the staff, not because it has magical powers, but because he knows where they need power to come from. Because he knows they're dependent on the Lord for victory. Like if God doesn't show up again, we're toast. We need him. So he lifts up his staff. Moses knew uh, that God was the God of salvation. In fact, uh, if you remember, at the end of chapter 14, we moved into chapter 15, and Moses sang a song. Remember that? And, and I, I've got one of the verses for you here uh, on the screen, uh, verse 2. Uh, this, is, this is what they sang. After God had led them out and, and, and parted the water so that they could walk through on dry ground and then uh, destroyed their enemy that was uh, barreling down on top of them, and Pharaoh's army was wiped out. And in chapter 15, verse 2, here's what Moses said. He said, the Lord is my strength. And my song, and he has become my salvation. And I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. That word exalt is the same word in the Hebrew that we've been seeing here to lift up. So Moses lifts up his staff just as he lifts up and exalts the name of his Savior. Lifted hands become a picture of our dependence on God for victory. They're crying out to God, you've got to save us. And Moses is not, you know, he doesn't fight with a sword. But we see him standing on, on the hill as a mediator. God's the one that does the victory, but here's Moses kind of as almost like a go-between. And he is interceding on behalf of God's people that are in need. He's an intercessor, a mediator. The problem is Moses is not a perfect mediator. In fact, if it was up to him, Israel would have lost this battle because look what happens verse 12. It says that Moses' hands grew weary. He, he couldn't do it. He certainly couldn't do it on his own. He needed help. In fact, that, that word to, to grow weary is the same word in Hebrew that Moses had used to describe his own inadequacies when God had first called him. Remember that when God showed up in the burning bush and said, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to lead uh, my people out of Egypt. And Moses, what did he do? He just starts giving all these excuses, God. Like, I can't, I can't do it. And one of the excuses that he made was he said, I am slow of speech. That's the same word. It's his weakness. And it's going to show up again in chapter 18 when uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is going to give him advice about not trying to oversee all the people uh, by himself. He says, you're going, to, you're going to wear yourselves out. This is too heavy for you. Moses is weak. The, the, the people of Israel can't put their trust in Moses. His hands are not steady enough. They're not trustworthy enough. They're not faithful enough. They have to look to someone else to save them. And so Moses lifting up his hands is pointing them to the one who can. But Moses then himself, as a mediator, gives us a picture of someone else, of the perfect mediator. Because Jesus is the greater Moses. 
the perfect mediator. He does not grow weary. He does not need help. And Hebrews 7 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is right now interceding for you, meaning he stands between us and the Father on our behalf. But watch this. It's so that we will be saved and so that we will not be rejected by the Father. Because think, think the, the, the point of this, I know a lot of times we, we read these stories and we see it as good guys versus the bad guys and we think we're the good guys and, you know, like God's going to... The, the point is not that God is going to help the good guys versus the bad guys. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're a, we are more like the Amalekites who deserve God's judgment. And so does Israel, by the way, especially after listening to them whine and complain. We're realizing, one of the things we've been realizing in the wilderness is that Israel's hearts are just as hard as Pharaoh's. It's always grace. It's always mercy. But for us, Jesus is our faithful mediator who steps in and saves us from the wrath of God because he is the sacrifice for our sin so that we could receive God's grace and God's forgiveness instead of judgment. And so we lift our hands in dependence on him. We cry out to him because we need him to save us even though we don't deserve it. We, we, we unfortunately, the reality is just that while we see Satan and his forces rebelling against God, the Bible tells us that we joined in the rebellion. We were right along with that. But when we trust in Jesus for salvation, what it means is that as our mediator who stands in between, we are now adopted as sons and daughters. We belong to him. But Jesus is not just the mediator. He's also the warrior. Because there's someone else in this story that also points us to Jesus. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 actually introduces us to someone who, who really needs no introduction to those who are reading the book of Moses and know uh, the rest of the story. It's this guy named Joshua. You heard of him? Okay, so you realize this is the first time that we're hearing about him in the Bible. And Moses just kind of casually drops him into the story, uh, really because by the time that they're reading this, Joshua is their leader. They know who he is. And so this story is pointing uh, to Israel's future leaders, so they're going to get a glimpse of what's to come. And you see it right there in verse 10. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. He was, so, so here's the deal. He was, he was obedient. He, he follows what uh, he was supposed to do. He's under a submission to the Lord, and then he leads God's people out into battle as a conquering warrior. And even though Joshua has... Uh, victory here, and, and he's going to have a whole lot of victory later on in the book of Joshua as he's leading the people into the promised land. Uh, uh, he's got this victory. He's still not a perfect leader. But, but he is another foreshadow pointing us to a greater leader for God's people. And we turn the pages of the Old Testament into the New, and we learn about this person named Jesus, Yeshua who will save God's people from their sins. 
You see, Jesus is the greater Joshua. He is the only conquering warrior who can actually defeat our enemies of sin and death and Satan's forces. This is why this is so significant for us as we're dealing with spiritual warfare that we would understand, man, we're gonna come under attack, but we know the one who gives us victory. Why? Because he's already won. That's what Colossians 2 says. I've got this one for you on the screen. Colossians 2 says that while Christ was on the cross, here's what he did. I know he, he, he made it possible for us to have forgiveness because he paid the price for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. But it also says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. No one else can do what Jesus has done. Satan thought he'd won as Jesus is there hanging on the cross in shame and dying. But in the ultimate reversal of the story, Jesus triumphed over Satan's kingdom through his death and crushed the head of the serpent as was prophesied. And it also says now that Satan is disarmed. He has no ability to win. Jesus wins. And so the most, most, listen, what this means is the most practical thing that I could do for you is to help you see the glory of Jesus so that you would be impressed with him, so that you would know how much you need him because he is the one. We've got to depend on him for victory. Because we don't want to make the mistake uh, when, when, it, when it comes to spiritual warfare that we, we, we think we got to psych ourselves up for battle. I, you, many of you know I'm a huge Ohio State football fan, Okay. Yesterday, I got to take my boys out to B-dubs, and we got to watch the start of the season. It was awesome. I love it. And I'm a nerd about this, okay? I follow, like, the blogs. I read everything. And there's this one blog that, that they make a, every, every week before game day, they make a trailer, like, like a little video. And, and I watch these. I show them to the kids. We get all excited about it. I know. I, I need help. But, but when we're watching this video, every video is kind of the same thing. Everybody's, everybody's like big hits and yelling and they're pounding into each other and they're thumping their chest, right? And you watch this video and by the time you're done, you're ready to just run through a brick wall. Now that may be how you prepare for a football game. That is not how you prepare for spiritual warfare. It's foolish for us to think that the way we get ready for this is we know Satan's coming, so, man, we got to just get hyped up, and we're going to go out there, we're going to punch Satan in the face. And that, that might, I know, that, like, for some of you, are like, that's weird. And, and I, like, that sounds silly. I get it. But, but listen, you're going to come under attack this week. And I don't want you to think that to fight back, you need to just go around uh, shaking your fist in anger and rebuking Satan and the demons all over the place as if by the own, uh, the own force of your own will, you're going to be able to take Satan down. I think a better position is with our hands lifted high, crying out to God in prayer, saying, Lord, I need you. We're not told to go out and attack Satan. We're told to stand firm. We're told to resist him firm in your faith. I gotta tell you, we can't do it on our own. Okay, Satan and his demons, his forces, are spiritual beings that by their very nature are stronger than you. And so left to yourself, in and of your own power, if you're going out there, you are going to lose Every single time. But not when we depend on the Lord in faith. So that leads us to the 
second battle strategy then if you're taking notes. Note this. Here's our second battle strategy for spiritual warfare. We rally around the Lord's victory. So leave no doubt about it. God gives them victory over the Amalekites. And then watch what God says. Verse verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. He's like, I want you to remember this this, this battle. I want you to remember what I did. In fact, Joshua's gonna need this reminder. Uh, So so, so write it down in a book. And actually, uh, I gotta tell you, this is the first mention in the Bible uh, of them writing the events down in a book. Like We need this. And it's so important that they remember who saved them. That not only did he write it down, but verse 15 says that Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi. This word Nisi, this word banner also means like a a standard or a military sign. It's It's a flag. And when you see the flag, the flag identifies whoever's standing around it. It tells who they are and where they belong. So I want you to picture soldiers marching out in a line and they've got their flag, they've got their banner out in front of them and they're marching along underneath those colors. They're identifying with it. And then even in the midst of the the, the chaos and the confusion of the battle with the smoke and the explosions going on, the soldiers are able to look up and they see their flag waving and they can run to it and they can regroup and they can rally around the banner. And so Moses is is marking this place with a name that is going to remind them that they can always run back to the one who saves them and the one who's going to give them victory. This is Jesus. Because look look at what Isaiah 11, I've got this for you on the screen, just so that you see this. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, now, That is Jesus, because Jesus is the son of David, the son of Jesse. So so he's prophesying about this day that is going to come, in that day uh, where where Jesus is going to stand as a signal. That's the same word. He's going to stand as a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He will raise a signal. He will raise a banner for the nations. Jesus is the banner, and he is raised for you. He's raised for the nations. That that, that we would run to him and that we would rally around his victory. Now, now, what that means, let me, let me clarify. So to, to, to rally around the Lord's victory means that you run back to the gospel. You're running back to what the word of God has said. It's this proclamation of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his empty tomb. That, 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 that you remember the victory that has already been won and that will one day be finalized when he returns. You cling to the cross, you, you, you point to the tomb, and you claim the victory of Jesus, that when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. That was the death knell for Satan and his rebellious kingdom. And putting your faith in the work of Jesus means that you are forgiven and that you belong to him. And there is nothing Satan can do about that. See, here's why we need this. Here's, here's why we've got to run back to this. Because um, Satan, um, he's going to come to you this week. He's going to try to tempt you uh, to, to think that other things are somehow better than Jesus. 
And we've got to be able to see that he is more glorious than that. But one of the other, maybe one of his most vicious attacks against us is he's going to come and he's going to try to accuse us. He's going to try to accuse you. He's going to try to throw all of your past sins and your mistakes in your face. Try to make you wallow in guilt and shame and in misery and in fear. And I know what this feels like to have these, these, these thoughts and you feel like you're pinned down, but they're lies. It's this lie that, that, that I know what you did last night and, and you screwed up again. And how could you call yourself a Christian? And you think anybody's going to love you now? And, and, and if, if, if only they knew what you've really done. And it's, it's over. There's no way things are ever going to get better now. And you're hopeless and you're stuck and you're never going to be free. And the only way we fight in that moment is to look up in God's word and see that the flag is still waving and run back to what Jesus has done for us and we rally around his victory. It's the only thing that's going to help us fight. Here's the deal. We, we are living right now in an already not yet reality. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus has already conquered Satan on the cross, but he has not yet thrown him into the lake of fire and sulfur. But Revelation 20 tells us that that day is coming. So in the meantime, under the sovereignty of God, Satan is allowed to come and attack us, and he's going to do that this week. But we need this word. We need to see the banner of Christ lifted high that, that, that reminds us that, that there's no chance Satan's going to win. He has no power over Jesus, and his fate is sealed. And the way that we fight the temptation that he's going to bring us and the accusations and the discouragement that we're going to face this week is we face it on our knees, Bibles open, hands raised in dependent, dependent prayer, just asking God, to give us strength, praising him for the victory that is ours in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. Father, I pray that you would do this work in us. We just realize that this is a reality. This is happening, and sometimes we don't even know it. We don't see it. We don't realize it. And I think that in, because of that, this makes us unaware and maybe unsuspecting, and, and maybe there are some that have been under attack very specifically lately. And maybe right now, for the first time, they're beginning to recognize it, be able to look back and see how, how there, there have been spiritual forces that have been trying to tempt them, trying to help them believe lies about who you are. And it's not true. And I pray that your spirit would fill us as we see the glory of Christ, that we would long for you. And we fight sin with a greater desire. And so I pray that as we've seen the beauty and the, the glory of Jesus, we, we love you more than we would love our sin. And Lord, when those lies are coming and we feel accused, we feel uh, weighed down by guilt and shame that we would run back. The flag is still waving. And we would see the victory that you have already won. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk in that. God, I pray that you would strengthen your church this week as we go, knowing, knowing the battle's coming. I pray that we would walk like Christ, walk with you, knowing that you're never going to leave us, 
So we just give you praise for that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.